you dream of a classroom where learning is natural? Can we inspire students to lifelong learning? What exactly is the purpose of an education? Inspiring students to be curious, independent, creative, innovative, deep thinking, confident, proactive, collaborative, determined, educated. Rise to the challenge of changing the world. This is teaching. This is learning. This is who we are. Welcome to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast. How much does work-life balance matter to today's professionals? Why do people communicate differently on email versus phone versus face-to-face? And what are the effects of helicopter parenting on the kids we are trying to protect? Today's podcast will reveal the answer to these crucial questions. Welcome to the Tabletop Inventing online radio show. Every week, we interview successful individuals from across the career spectrum and share their stories. The best information on how to raise intelligent, curious, successful kids is out there, and we're collecting it into one place on our on-demand radio show. Today's guest is particularly well acquainted with the pitfalls surrounding current trends in parenting and education. Joni Connell is a PhD psychologist with a degree in engineering who coaches high-performing professionals. In her work with these high-profile individuals, she has become painfully aware of some glaring issues in modern parenting and education habits. Let's jump straight into this action-packed interview. My guest today is Joni Connell. Joni has a PhD in psychology from UC Berkeley and specifically in social psychology and organizational psychology. So we're going to ask her lots of questions about leadership. What I found curious, though, was that she has a background in electrical engineering. We're definitely going to ask some questions about that. And I, I just have to say, I don't know that I've ever had a guest on our podcast that has a black belt in karate, but maybe I never asked. So, Joni, tell us a little bit about that journey from electrical engineering to psychology. Well, let's see. As an engineer, I did that career mostly because I wanted to have a profession right out of college. And it was made crystal clear to me when I was in college that the funding from my parents was going to end (laughs) the day I graduated. And so I went into engineering because I was good at math and, and the engineering part, but it really wasn't a passion of mine. And I got out there, I went to work in Silicon Valley, right in the heat of all of the great engineering. And I found myself wanting to leave at five, whereas my peers wanted to stay till two and debug. And I just realized I'm more interested in the people than I am in the products. And maybe you might say more interested in engineers than engineering, perhaps. And so I I stuck it out for a while. And I tried to get to have more people-oriented type of work, like in marketing and consulting. But eventually, I went back to school and studied psychology. I thought about business for a while, but I really wanted to study the people. Like I said, I I love to figure out how things work. That's the engineer in me. I want to know how things work. I want to solve problems. And psychology is a lot about that, especially in the consulting arena. So I, I merged the two interests. I did my dissertation on how people interact differently depending on which medium of communication they're communicating on, like face-to-face, telephone, and uh, computer, like chat or email. And I looked at how uh, people would 
communicate differently, how they would influence others and manage their their impressions on these different ways of communicating. And after that, I got out in the workplace and I do a lot of work on virtual teams and a lot on leadership as well. And one of my favorite things to do is help technical people communicate better and lead better, learning how to use some of those people skills that aren't taught in engineering school. All right, so you've caught my interest. I, <laughs> I now need to know what is different on these different communication modes. How do people communicate differently in email versus face-to-face and meetings? How does the context change their communication? Well, think about it. When we are face-to-face, we have lots of channels of communication, right? We have the verbal, the nonverbal, the context. You can see somebody's uh, cues, like if they're looking happy, their smile. If they're not really smiling, you can tell a little bit by perhaps their arms are crossed and they're not facing you. But when you're on the phone, you can't see all of that. You can hear the different intonations in the voice, and you can tell if somebody might have some anger behind when they're speaking, but you don't see all of those other things. And so we can tell on a podcast, for example, when we're just doing an audio interview, you don't have to worry about managing all those impressions, yet you also don't get all of that information either. So it's, it's a little bit less. But when we're doing it on the computer, when we're chatting or IMing or emailing, there's even less information. And that can make people feel a lot more comfortable to say what's really on their mind. You don't have to look someone in the eye. You can really rant and rave at them. (laughs) Tell them that they're not a very, you know, intelligent person or whatever it is you want to do. That's really not very nice. Whereas you wouldn't do that face to face to somebody typically. So we find that, you know, to answer your question in a little more general terms, how do people interact differently? Well, people tend to be a lot more comfortable on the Internet and on email, chat, whatever, because they can just say whatever they want and they tend to not control as much. And that can be a, a problem as well. And in fact, we're seeing that as a problem now with a lot of younger people. They get to the workplace and they're so used to being able to say whatever they feel like it because they're behind the screen that when they're interacting face to face, they don't have the diplomatic skills, right? So they are challenged in those regards. The funny thing, though, was that I actually have a paper out called Don't Hang Up on the Telephone Yet. And that came out of my dissertation work. And that is saying that people are really like the phone the best. That's for two reasons. One, that you can ease up a little bit and you don't have all of those cues. For example, if you're having an interview with somebody and you're on the phone, you can relax because you don't have to worry about how you look if you're you know, having the right posture and if your hair is in the right place, you know, if there's something in your teeth or something like that. But you also get the cues from the person. There's a lot more information so that you have enough information, but not too much. So that's kind of a happy medium for people. All right. So I've been watching my teenagers (laughs) and now a lot of these things are making sense because they do just like blurt things sometimes. And I, I, Mm -hmm. I just thought, well, maybe all teenagers do that. Maybe I did that when I was a teenager, but it did feel like they did it a little more than I did. And I didn't grow up with a cell phone. I mean, I had a landline with a cord that went to the wall. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yep, me too. But we are finding that. 
exactly that. That the when you're getting used to being able to do that and you have this sort of safety zone there because there's a screen protecting you between the person that you can just blurt out something and make some sarcastic remark or something funny or a little edgy. But when you're face to face, it's it may not, you know, be appropriate. Hmm. All right. So now I'm curious about something else. So are there preferred modes of communication for certain kinds of tasks to make them more effective then? Absolutely. And there's a lot of research on this. And you know, you can kind of figure it out on your own, but you look at face-to-face is probably better if you have uh, something sensitive, especially emotionally sensitive. If you have to give somebody feedback that they didn't do very well on a presentation or on a project, you want to try to get them face-to-face so you can say it in a way that is sensitive and check in on the person's reactions so that you can uh, deal with anything if there's a problem there. You don't want to email it because, you know, it often sounds worse on email. Right? You, you don't want to start a fight on email either. <laughs> Those can get out of control. When you have negative information to share or sensitive information face-to-face, even if you can't do face-to-face, a lot of teams I work with are all across the globe. And so the telephone would be the next best option. Or you could do a Skype or some other video chat. On the other hand, you when you're sharing information or things that uh, don't have to be done right away, uh, sometimes emailing is good. You have a little bit more time to compose what you need to say. You can write it out and share data and you can get to people in India when you're in the United States and leave them a message when they're not working at the same time as you and then they can respond during their time zone when you're not available. So there's a lot of use for that kind of communication as well. But uh, when you get it to be really complex information or creative information, that's also hard to share in a text-based format. All right. So you just got my attention with the creative information because I I have a group of people that I work with in a, a small group in a couple of different contexts. And I noticed that it felt a little stiff when mm-hmm. we didn't use video and when suddenly I could see their faces and see their reactions when we switched modes. It seemed like the ethic of the group changed a little bit. So that makes a lot of sense now based on the creative Mm -hmm. information because there is a higher bandwidth of communication with creative information because it's still half formed in your head and sometimes Mm -hmm. the gestures and other things are needed to communicate that. Yep. I work with companies that do for example, industrial design, and they may have offices or design centers located across the globe from each other, like Japan and California or something like that. And they would prefer to spend the money to fly people back and forth just because of that. When you design something and it has an aesthetic look, you want to see somebody's reaction to it. Hmm. Right. You want to and you, you want to share those ideas and talk about them. It is so much more efficient for them to get the group together face to face to share that kind of information than it would be to try to do it on email or that way. Interesting. So this has this information that you have then has morphed quite a bit because I noticed that you have a website called Flexible Work Solutions. So mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about what you do at Flexible Work Solutions. Well, Flexible Work Solutions deals with flexibility in the workplace. And part of that is being flexible in terms of 
virtual work and virtual teams, distributed teams. Part of that is from telecommuting, how people can work from home, and which is also largely virtual. But it's also moving into a broader perspective of figuring out when people need to work, if they can have different schedules, work different types of days of the week, for example, four days a week, longer days instead of five shorter days so that they could have longer weekends. And this is becoming increasingly important for different generations in the workplace. And it makes a lot of sense. It's much more efficient for the organizations as well, because if you have somebody who needs to do something else. Now here in San Diego, need is kind of an interesting word because we have a lot of surfers, for example. (laughs) (laughs) They need to hit the waves when the waves are in a good place, right? And, you know, what difference is that from somebody who has other needs like childcare or have to take care of an elderly parent? You know, everybody has different interests and needs that they want to deal with. And if we allow people to have that flexibility, to the extent that you can, right, then um, the organizations can prosper because people are working when they're in a good place and their minds are ready to work. And when they're not working, they're off doing what they need to be doing so that you can manage that. Also, in terms of the flexibility and, and just in general, I do a lot of leadership consulting in all forms. Work-life balance comes up a lot, though. So now I'm, again, curious. <laughs> do you find that when people have more options for flexibility, particularly creative people or people who are you know, professionals, people who want a little more autonomy over what they do, do they have a tendency to stay with the company longer or do they connect in a deeper way with their, their workplace than if they just come in from nine to five during Monday through Friday? Well, flexibility in the workplace is a really good tool to create loyalty to the organization and job satisfaction. So people who get what they want and are comfortable working in a certain way are a lot more likely to be more productive and have higher job satisfaction. And it can be used as a perk instead of paying people more. I work, you know, in San Diego, again, it's a very entrepreneurial city, small companies who may not have as much money to give gigantic salaries like they do in Silicon Valley, but they can give a lot more in terms of the flexibility or other different types of options. And so when people value that, it can be used as a commodity in which to get paid, right? So that you get paid in your flexibility instead of the salary. So you can be doing other things. So yes, you know, you also ask about just creative people. I happened to be having a conversation with somebody yesterday who said she works better at 10 o'clock at night. And so she has a flexibility in her job. She's worked it out with her manager to be able to leave at three if she wants to go off and do what she needs to do. She doesn't have kids, so she's not picking them up. She's doing other things. And then she logs back on at night and gets her best work done then. And there's a trust there between the manager and the employee that uh, she will be doing her work. But there's also accountability there because the results are being measured as opposed to the time sitting in a chair, right? So the manager can see that the employee is getting her work done by what she produces rather than how much time she's warmed a chair in the office. I guess I had an early introduction to that. Uh, I worked for my dad. My dad's an orthodontist, and he never paid us by the hour Mm -hmm. ever when we were kids. We had to show him something. Uh, look, this is what I did. And then he would pay us for that. You know, so we had to, to clean things or we mowed the lawn or we 
eventually graduated to doing some of the lab work in the back, like making re- the retainers and things that you get after you have your braces off. Mm-hmm. And we got paid by the thing. And so I I definitely understand that being paid for productivity. And I guess I've always wanted to be paid more like that. And I've always found myself when I had to punch a clock antsy, like it was mm-hmm. a waste of time because I knew when I wasn't being creative, my brain was starting to shut off. And I had to stay in this place doing this thing that I knew I was getting almost nothing done. And I figured, well, you know, maybe I could go out and run or maybe I could trim the weeds out front. And my mind started to wander. But when I had the flexibility to produce and then get measured that way, I always felt better about that. So is there a correlation there? Do people actually give better work when they're measured that way? They tend to be, but it depends on the type of job too. Some jobs you need to be there. You need to be, you know, a security person would need to be able to be there during the hours to watch the location. You know, you go to the coffee shop, somebody needs to be there to serve the coffees at five in the morning or whenever they open. So it depends on the type of work. But in the creative person, absolutely. There's a lot of research shows that creativity does not happen on a schedule. And it really has to percolate for a while. And sometimes it comes up in the most unexpected times. You might be in the middle of eating dinner or taking a shower or in the middle of the night, wake up and have a great idea. And so these are the kind of things where having flexibility for that type of work is much more beneficial for the company and for the individual. How are all of these topics related to your new book? You have all this background and understanding of social context and organizations and communication styles. How's that related to your new book? And tell us a little bit about that. Okay, well, the new book is a pretty different topic. It's about preparing young people for the workplace. Now, you wonder how I might have gotten to that point. Well, it's from working with people who are already in the workplace, from experienced, successful people, and finding out that the challenges that they're dealing with and what helped them be successful. And this is some of what you do on this podcast, is l- listening to people who are successful and finding out some of the struggles that they went through. And that's something that we're tr- I'm trying to help get back to the younger generation of people and their parents and educators, because we're so focused today on the education piece, on the getting into college and getting the right, quote, unquote, education and school and, and all of that, that we're losing touch with some of the other life skills that are so important to succeed in the workplace. And the book is about taking the lessons learned from these successful people at work and bringing them in to younger people and saying, it's not just about getting A's or taking AP English. It's about being independent, having the resilience to bounce back after a failure. It's about being creative, which is something that we're losing a lot of these days with such overscheduled children. So those are the types of skills. And the communication, I think, is another one we already talked about, that people aren't learning to communicate as effectively in the way people are being brought up, both with the technology and so many multiple choice tests. So the book really deals with how to bring people into the workplace and help them succeed with using these other life skills as opposed to just their expertise that they learned in their education. So the title of your book is called Flying Without a Helicopter. Connect those ideas for us. Well, the helicopter refers to the helicopter parent, as you may have guessed. And that's a very big trend in parenting today 
and it has been for the millennial generation as well for being helicopter parents. And that's come up a lot because parents are so concerned about the safety of their children and also that there's a lot more competition in the world than there was previously to get into these schools and to get into places where they want to get good jobs, things like that. So parents are working a lot harder to help their kids with their best intentions to be successful in life. But the helicoptering, hovering over them and protecting them and doing things for them is what's holding them back from being independent people who can be resilient and communicate effectively. And so the idea of flying without a helicopter is helping the children who are growing up and then getting jobs to be able to do that without somebody hovering over and taking care of them and doing it for them. So tell us a little bit about the consequences of being a helicopter parent. What happens in the workplace? What do you see coming across the workplace when we have parents like that? Well, what drove me to write the book is listening to one manager or executive after another complain about the struggles they're having with the younger people coming into the workplace. And these have shifted. Now, we always have generational conflict in every generation. So it goes beyond that, though. There's some very specific things that are going on. And let's see, some of the examples include managers complaining that employees come in, they aren't able to work independently. They need managers to outline, not even just outline, to explain every step of the way to get a project done. They can't just tell someone, here, go do this and come back to me when you need help. The the employee needs somebody to outline specifically how they have to do it, and they keep checking in over and over to the point where the manager doesn't have time to get his or her other work done. Uh, Another example is resilience. I have so many managers who have talked to me personally about examples of trying to give feedback to their employees to help them improve and employees bursting into tears, not being able to take feedback, quitting their jobs because they didn't get it in a way that they wanted to and being resilient to be able to make mistakes, also being risk averse because they are so used to getting all A's that they're not willing to take a risk that might fail and make a mistake. So we have you know, complaints from the management about these different issues. And I could go on and on. <laughs> you let me know how many you want. But you know, the independence, resilience, communication, that's another one that comes up a lot is that uh, writing has suffered a great deal that writing is not emphasized as much and uh, people aren't able to communicate in meetings in the face-to-face domain as well, that there's um, not as much emotional intelligence or management of emotions in the workplace. And you can see a technology effect on that because, you know, when you're communicating on technology, people tend to be a lot more free in how they communicate and not have to be as diplomatic. So the communication, creativity is a last really important one, and it seems surprising. We would think that we're seeing so much more creativity in the younger generation of people. There's just so much out there. They've created all different types of technologies and everything, but we're finding that with all the structure in extracurricular activities, in education, in just time at home, that parents always have activities for people to do. I mean, you go into a toy store now and you see kits. For example, look at Legos. You used to buy Legos or Lego and they were just a bunch of blocks. And now you go in and it's a kit 
that gives you step-by-step -step instructions on how to build a spaceship or a house or whatever it is you want to build. So things have changed a lot and we're losing some of those skills that are so critical to the workplace. I hadn't thought about the overscheduling as a contributing factor to creativity, but stepping back a little bit, I can totally see that. Creativity is one of those things that can't be forced, and it's very, very related to play and free mm -hmm. expression, mm -hmm. which doesn't exist on a schedule. Like we, I mean, I think you said that earlier in the interview, actually, that creativity can't be uh, had on a schedule necessarily. And I hadn't thought about that, uh, the overscheduling thing. So what do you recommend? Well, in terms of the overscheduling, the thing I recommend is let your kids be bored. Parents <laughs> tend to panic about that. I mean, <laughs> really, how creative are you when you're bored? That's when you need to come up with an idea on how to either entertain yourself or be productive or something like that. When you're bored, when you have time to let your mind wander, you know, that's when you have time to be creative. And structuring and, and feeling like you have to be in an educational moment at all times is taking away that opportunity for a kid to explore and figure things out on their own and not have somebody give them an idea or a solution to a problem. So part of that is just letting them be bored, but also just letting them have downtime to figure out on their own what they want to do and coming up with things. Uh, you know, they always have that joke about the kids like the box better than the toy, right? It's because they have time to be creative and use the box in a way that they feel like it, not the way it was designed to contain the toy, right? So giving kids opportunities to do that and to play. That's the other one. Play is so important. Giving kids an opportunity to play with each other, make their own games, role plays and interact in a way that parents and teachers and adults aren't suggesting that they interact and letting them make their own rules and interpret the world in their own ways. So those are a couple different things that are really important. All right. So I'm torn because there are several things I'd like to ask and I can't ask all of them because we're going to run out of time. So let me mm -hmm. go this way. Uh, I wasn't expecting you to say bored. <laughs> and what would you say to teachers and administrators about school? and how school might be helicoptering a little? Well, schools are helicoptering to some extent, and in part by bringing the parents in. One of the things that I've noticed in the early years is having parents be in charge of the children's homework, for example. That's not as much of the creativity as the accountability piece and learning how to be responsible for your own work. But in terms of being bored and being more creative and having those opportunities is to give kids downtime. I mean, recess is something that has come up as uh, we're losing that time at school. We're putting in more English and math instead of having recess. So perhaps giving kids more time to have those unstructured opportunities and then giving them time to come up with their own solutions to problems rather than teaching them the right solution. So those kind of activities where you're asking kids to think and to try to figure it out for themselves and talk through these things rather than giving them a, a problem with a solution that you already deemed as correct. So I, I again, hadn't thought of this connection. I had an interview, of, it seems like it's been about a month ago or a month and a half ago with a gentleman named Tony Wagner. Uh, we talked about this idea of creating innovators, which is a book he has. And we've moved into this space now where the, the global economy is shifting a lot. And to stay at the forefront of the economic edge, 
it looks like we actually have to create people who are creating solutions because Google has pretty much taken away the mm-hmm. advantage of knowing more than the person next to you. Mm-hmm. And yet in our pursuit in schools to prepare our students, we have eliminated some of the most important things for those skills. Uh, mm-hmm. how, how do we backtrack a little bit on this? Well, I like to tell parents and, and maybe educators too, is to coach more than to uh, do it for them, right? To stand back and ask the questions to the kids. Say, how would you do this? What kind of information do you need? What kind of uh, possible consequences might arise for the actions that you've taken? Uh, What problems might you run into? And get the kids to be thinking through those things rather than having somebody tell them, oh, no, you can't do it that way because this is going to be a problem for you, right? Or, oh, you know, make sure to look at this information. You know, let them explore. Let them come up with incorrect solutions. Let them figure out how these solutions were wrong and ask them the questions. Well, what were you expecting? How can you make a different uh, outcome for this? You know, and, and guide them with questions rather than answers. Well, that's right down our alley because we love to do that. Uh, my wife is a constructivist educator, and if you have a background in psychology, you probably know what that word means. We very much believe in that idea of asking questions rather than giving answers. And my favorite way to think about that for parents is this idea that a question can actually drive curiosity for a lifetime. Mm -hmm. And in most cases, an answer just, it stops a conversation short. I mean, seconds and it's done. You don't need to talk about it anymore because it's the answer. And we need those questions. So you know, from your perspective, thinking about teachers and, and parents, how do we help parents make that shift to asking questions? I mean, is, is it data? Is it stories? What's that magic formula to make this change in our society, do you think? Mm, I don't know if I have magic for you, but <laughs> I have some ideas. <laughs> some suggestions include, first of all, Parents need to think about why they're doing it for their kids. Now, sometimes you need to. You're in a hurry. You need to run out the door. You pick out an outfit for the kid even though they can't figure out what to wear because you just need to go. Other times you have more time and you can give the opportunity for the kid to choose and figure out what to wear or something like that or solve a problem, uh, how to tie a shoe or I don't know if people do that anymore, but, you know, those kind of things. So you have to figure out the situation, but getting the opportunity to do that is, is one. Another one is not expecting perfection. I think that's one of the most important things right now that's stifling creativity is that so often parents check over their kids' work. They want it to be perfect before they turn it in to the teacher. And so, first of all, by doing that, you're correcting the child and then stifling the the creativity in the child because the, the child feels like they didn't get the right answer. But letting the kid work it out with the teacher, letting the kid run into troubles and have the teacher give them feedback and manage that relationship without the parent involved. So I think some of this is the control factor, wanting everything to be perfect. But when you do that, you're not letting people make mistakes and have that trial and error and have that curiosity because they're expected to get the perfect answer every time. So you need to back up a little bit and say, it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to not get all A's, especially in lower school. So let the kids go in and and figure this out rather than 
saying, hey, we need to get everything perfect every day. So I hadn't thought about this. So again, with your insight here that and your perspective, does this create in the child this idea that, oh, well, I don't have to get it right because someone else is going to fix it for me? Yeah, that does happen. That does happen. And then you get to the workplace and the same thing happens, right? They get there and they don't have to get it right. And then they call mom or dad to come in and fix it for them. Right? You have this in college too. The kids call mom and dad and have them come in. I was just talking to a professor recently uh, who has students in graduate school. The parents come in and talk to their advisors for them because the students <laughs> are uncomfortable. Right. The students are uncomfortable having that conversation. So the parents will come in and make an appointment or in the workplace. The parents will come in to talk to the manager. And I am not kidding. This happens a lot. It's because the kids haven't had that opportunity to have that uncomfortable uh, conversation or to make the mistake and figure out how to improve. And you need to get those experiences to be comfortable with it and to be able to bounce back. Absolutely. Wow. Well, I have about 20 more questions now. <laughs> but we need to wrap it up. So let's come to the last two questions. And if you've, sounds like you've heard a few of our podcasts, so you're not going to be surprised by this. So in the digital age, we have lots of tools. What does it mean now to be educated? What's that word educated mean? Well, that's a really interesting question. What does it mean to be educated? Well, I think, oh, geez, I don't know if I have a good answer for that. Educated can come from so many different forms of education. It can be self-educated. It can be educated by others. It can have a degree next to your name, you know, a doctorate or something like that. But I think it really means to have information or knowledge about uh, something that might be important to use or not even necessarily important, but just have knowledge about something. So... We can go out and we can find this knowledge on, on Google and Wikipedia and YouTube, etc. How do we deepen that with students? Like, is there a deeper form of education that maybe we should seek out in the meaning of that word? Well, I think education is important to understand things and know about them. But I think applying that knowledge is really what makes a difference. And you look at things, you know, organizations like Google and all that, the way that people are making a difference in this world is by applying this knowledge and creating new things. So it's not the actual information itself that's important. It's what you do with it. So I think in the education, it's a matter of thinking what you can do with the information and the knowledge that you gain more than just gaining it on its own in itself just to learn. That's great. But if you want to make an impact, you need to be able to apply it. All right. So you're actually beginning to touch on the last question that we usually ask, and that is, what is the purpose of an education? Mm. Well, people differ on that one. You know, I think the purpose of an education is partly, I, I believe, in the purpose of just learning for itself. I think it's great just to have knowledge and have interesting things to learn as a lifelong pursuit. But I also think that the purpose, especially for schools, is to help people be able to be functional adults. And to be functional adults, you have to have some sort of knowledge on how things work and math and be able to speak the language and those kind of things. But you also need to have some more life skills as well to be able to function, to learn how to be independent, to solve problems, to... Uh, maybe even have some of those skills in terms of managing a budget, those kind of things as well. 
So I think we're going to wrap it right there. Thank you so much, Joni, for uh, giving us a perspective into engineering from a different side, uh, from, from the workplace and from the relational aspects. If our audience wants to know more, they want to uh, connect with you or learn more about uh, your book, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, my website is FlexibleWorkSolutions.com. That has everything on it. But the book has its own website as well, which is FlyingWithout.com. And there's a free chapter on there as well. So if you want to learn more about the book and get a sample, you can go to FlyingWithout.com. Excellent. Thank you so much, Joni, for talking to us today and uh, helping us see things from a different perspective. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Joni and I discussed things, I believe, for quite some time. But she brings the psychological and social credibility. Her background in engineering and work with professionals strikes a curious juxtaposition with the stories and woes of executives with unmotivated kids. I loved her advice to just let kids be bored sometimes. It's so easy as parents to feel like we must be in some sort of educational moment all the time. But Joni's wisdom says we should back off and allow kids natural curiosity to take over. Honestly, I couldn't agree more. Our whole inventor camp framework revolves around letting kids jump into the deep end of the pool to see if they can figure out how to swim. Standing back while kids discover things on their own inspires much more learning than overscheduling or helicoptering ever can. It is a hard thing to let our kids face life on their own. I know, I have teens too, but you don't have to take this road alone. Sign your kids up for Inventor Camp and become a part of a growing community of parents who are learning to pull back on the helicoptering. Head over to ttinvent.com, that's T-T-I-N-V-E-N-T.com, and sign your teen up for Inventor Camp. We'll help you step back and let your teenagers step up.